Hello and welcome to another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. I'm Jeremiah and I'm here with David Moser. Hello, Jeremiah. Good to see you. Welcome to my home. Yeah, we're actually taping this in David's house today. Uh, my house has in-laws and it's, uh, well, it's a lot of fun to have them in town. It's just a little bit crazy at the house. So we're taping this over at David's Casa and it's a, it's a nice place. I'm surrounded by all these books and CDs. It's, it feels like a really kind of scholar's lounge in here. Yeah, I'm checking your backpack when you leave. Both David and I, we both worked at study abroad programs for, well, you know, for most of our careers here in China. And this is something that has changed a whole lot in the last five years, but really, of course, in the last two years. Students aren't coming, study abroad programs are suffering. But David, this is something, this is more like a big blow, COVID, in a, against a, in a situation that was already pretty bad, right? Yeah, exactly. This is this is one that was already uh, since really, I would say since 2010, uh, not sure what happened then exactly, <laughs> Xi Jinping, <clears throat> but uh, this has been going on for a long time since the since the 2008 Olympics. You and I, at least I, participated in many sort of fraught emergency meetings in Beijing with people saying, "Where are the where are the American students? Why are we seeing dropping in 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 uh, enrollment in overseas study programs when we should be seeing, uh, you know." Uh, a, a tsunami, given China's importance, and there was lots of uh, hand wringing and uh, analysis of why this could be the case. Uh, but then uh, last year, COVID hit, and now it's like it it dealt a death blow to many of the programs that we've known for a long time, or at least a mortal blow. There's still some of them are still still up and running, but um, the programs that that I was working CET. Of course, has has seen uh, you know it's taken a big hit. I assume the program that you were working with, IES, does that they don't even exist in Beijing anymore, right? No, they didn't even yeah. make it to COVID. They didn't even make it to COVID. Yeah. So yeah, it's a serious problem. It's something we need to address. Uh, I hope that in this in this episode we can talk a little bit about what happened, maybe make some speculations about uh, what the problems were, and then sort of move ahead and say say how can we move forward uh, in this post COVID world. Because I think we both, you and I both agree that uh, getting Americans here in China firsthand, living here, understanding the culture, seeing it, you know, feeling it, smelling it and everything is very, very important to the future, the long-term future of, of the U.S.-China relationship. And there's a history peg here, too, because we just passed the 50th anniversary of the famous ping-pong diplomacy, where the American athlete <coughs> boarded the wrong right. bus ended up riding to the venue with the Chinese team and then later accepted an invitation to uh, play ping pong, have the ping pong team visit China. And that was seen as the beginnings of a rapprochement between mm -hmm. China and the U.S. And 50 years later, we're looking at a moment where I don't know if we're heading to rupture, but it certainly feels like on alternating nights, one of the two countries in this relationship is sleeping on the couch. <laughs> ping pong diplomacy kind of seems nostalgic and sort of a, some of a hazy optimism back then. And for the time thereafter, it seemed it did seem like things were moving in a very interesting direction in all ways. So now, yes, we're at a crisis point. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I, you know, when I first got involved in study abroad, I, I've been working in study abroad in China, uh, going back to the early 2000s before the Olympics. And, you know, for me, it was, all, it was about the optimism. It was about the idea of, yeah, you know, the experience I had as a student abroad, you come to a place, you get out of the United States. And again, we're, we're working mostly with American students. 
you know, it's, it's a big country. A lot of people don't leave it. And when you get the students out of the United States, when they drop them into a new environment, that's like a transformative experience. And being a part of that was something that was really cool for, for me and I assume for you as well. And the other part of it, too, was, of course, the relationship with China has always been a little bit tense. But the idea was maybe if we can get American, young, young Americans, get a backpack on their back, get them to China, have them talk to people, have them live with people, you know, that that would really help to kind of build those kind of connections right. that will lead to greater understanding. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that was indeed an amazing time. Um, you know, we have to realize, of course, China was never uh, the number one choice of study abroad students. Yeah, but that's what I liked about it. Yeah, no, like, exactly, no. I, mean, no. Like, I, I, loved, I loved the kids that I worked with because, I mean, people sometimes ask, why do I teach in China versus in the U.S.? Because it's such a self-selecting group. Like, yeah. these are, for the most part, like the, the China geeks like me. They could be going to, like, Barcelona. They could be going to Costa Rica. And yet they decided that, no, man, I want to do Beijing in January. Right, exactly. And, and you know, most of the students, and, and you know, from, from what we heard from them, especially later on when they returned, and, and many of them came back, for them, many it was a life-transforming experience. They, uh, they always speak, speak of it. Probably I would be really missed not to mention some of these people just to give an example. Just as, as far as I know, the CET program that I was administrating for a, a time uh, produced, or at least some people went through the CET program, the likes of Evan Osnos, right, who did the program in the late 90s, Anthony Kuhn, uh, Andrew Batson at, at uh, Dragonomics, Susan Jakes at Asia Society, um, Jonathan Ansfield, the New York Times. The, you know, these are all uh, uh, former CET students that went on to do great things with China and probably do in large part to the experience they had with CET. I, I would also mention uh, just the, you know, in the peripheral of CET, we also had, uh, as, as your program did, I think you had Chinese roommates, but you had also students living in Chinese houses. That experience also produced lots of synergy and interesting uh, cooperation later on. Um, the CGTN or CCTV uh, host, uh, Tenway, who is, uh, used to be with Dialogue sometimes and has her own show now, uh, she was a CET roommate and still speaks fondly of that period as her first experience interacting with Americans you know, as a roommate. And I don't think it's a coincidence that she's one of the few uh, CCTV hosts who is really attempting right now to do a, do a, a, a series or, ver or various programs sort of uh, accentuating what what we call zheng neng liang, a sort of positive energy interaction with foreigners uh, in China right now, uh, doing research in China or living in China and doing interesting things. She's done a series of programs and is still trying to, to sort of create that uh, positive energy by inviting on, you know, China-friendly guests, but, but China hands, people like Michael Pettis, people who really know China and really know the economy. And I think that's a partly a direct result of her experience back then that was that was very uh, a cross-cultural experience that she never forgot and really sort of yearns for that sort of connection uh, and you know that's one of the effects of that a study abroad program can have when it's done right you know I, I totally agree I, one of the aspects of the program that I, I worked at uh, IES abroad was that we had homestays and you know, there are many examples I can recall of students who have kept in touch with their homestay parents long after they returned to the U.S. Or in, in some cases, we have quite a few students who came back to China or working in China and still hung out with their homestay moms and dads. You know, sometimes even they get little mini reunions of the family. That is the 
host mom and dad and several generations of students who have stayed with them. And I think also that for the homestay parents themselves, a lot of them were retired university people. And I thought it was also a really interesting opportunity for them to kind of learn a little bit more mm-hmm. about American culture. Yeah, right. We, we always know, we would always assume that, you know, people in China know more about the U.S. than people in the U.S. know about China. And, and yeah, there, there's a lot of truth to that for sure. But some of the nuances of American culture sometimes don't always come across. And, you know, you think about for your average person in China, yes, they know a lot about the U.S., but it's generally filtered through one of two sources, which is either Chinese state media or Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, you know, just in that kind of person-to-person level, living with a student, asking questions about their family, you know, learning about what kind of makes them tick. I think that was really helpful for a lot of the Chinese homestay parents, and it was certainly really helpful for the American students being in that environment. So I totally agree. Uh, That sort of experience was transformative it was important it was it it changed the lives of the many of many people who participated in it of course um, there still is a huge uh, asymmetry however uh, between the China and the US and I think that was in the beginning one of the one of the impetus or do you say impeti what's the plural of impetus impetuses of the study abroad programs which which was actually to get some Americans here to understand this country which which many Chinese already understood you know in reverse they understood our culture if you just look at the sheer numbers the fact that um, pre-covid anyway there were something like uh, 350,000 Chinese students studying at various universities in, in the United States Whereas the last number I saw, the high point was only something like eleven thousand Americans living in, and studying in China, so that's that's a pretty awful sort of asymmetry there, and speaks to a, sort of a long-term possible problem with the relationship. Yeah, but, talk, but the thing about those those we hear those numbers a lot, right? That you know, at one point President Obama launched the one hundred thousand right. student initiative. Hundred thousand strong. Hundred thousand strong, right? And the idea was to kind of you know close that right. gap. But then, and even to a certain extent now, the reasons for studying in the two countries are vastly sure, different. of course, yeah. But the, but the level of understanding is there due to the sheer presence. So, you know, when I was thinking, this is very important, if you think back during the COVID year last year, which was the, the most intense year, when, when, when information exchange was probably at its most important point. At this point, some of it's, it's kind of irrelevant or, or pointless. But back then, you had still... Uh, many hundreds of thousands of, of students studying in the United States, all all of whom had good English, had probably been studying America and American culture since they were in high school, junior high, or grade school, and uh, who had been living in the United States studying for at least a year or two or three, and also had daily, if if not just constant, contact with their with their parents and relatives in China via WeChat and other kinds of of, of ways. So this is these students who are living here, learning the culture. I say here, I should have said there, we're in China right now, not the U.S., but living in China, in the U.S., exploring the culture, understanding the language and, and the culture, um, but also communicating a lot of that information back to China, uh, to their relatives, their families, who are also watching American TV, as you said, ingesting American culture through American uh, TV series and, and so forth. So we have... Uh, you know, at this point, you know, year after year, the numbers add up to several many millions of, of Chinese people, students who have spent much time in the United States. But they also, as you said, they've also sort of vicariously lived uh, in America 
by watching all of these t- Hollywood movies and uh, TV series, which, albeit, you know, they're, they're, these are not the most realistic representations of American culture. But still, it's an inroad, but not only these entertainment media, but um, also uh, our news shows, our talk shows, uh, especially anything that has to do with China. Anything that uh, would be news in China quickly gets disseminated in China. It goes on TikTok or Douyin or go, goes on you know, WeChat. And so um, they're literally, whether they're in China or in the United States, listening in on our conversations. So they're sort of understanding how we joke, the kinds of statements that we make, the way we talk about China, the misapprehensions we have and so forth. They're sort of, they've got an ear out and an eye out. They're watching us, listening to us. They have what I would say is a, a kind of a, a deep or at least a, a, a more substantial cultural understanding from their point of view to our culture than we have of theirs. We simply just don't have the sheer number of people exchanging information. Therefore, the experience of people like that have gone through our program and the people like Evan Osnos that, that in, ended up turning it into partially a career, that's a very important experience. We need more people like that, not less, because uh, the more kind of people we have as a resource that can go into dip- diplomacy, that can go into government, that can go into business, and be a voice who, who knows, can speak definitively about China, that's a, that's a valuable resource. And what we've seen is a sort of a cutting off, a strangulation of that channel because of various reasons that we haven't gotten into yet. But then also the, the last year with COVID has, has really, uh, you know, seriously harmed that channel, sort of denigrated that channel. I don't know about you, but I still am thinking we've got to figure out how to get out of this and bring us back to at least where it was pre-COVID. You know, I think part of this information asymmetry too comes down to an asymmetry in of attention. And what I mean by that, uh, the experience I draw from in talking about this is my experience as a Red Sox fan. In Boston, People care about the Red Sox, and we really pay a lot of attention to the Red Sox rival, the New York Yankees. Whatever the Yankees do gets reported in the Boston papers. The Yankees make a trade. We talk about it for weeks. We really care what the Yankees do. They're our arch rival. We hate them. People actually chant Yankees suck at weddings. In New York, they understand there's a rivalry. They don't like the Boston Red Sox. And every, every once in a while, the Red Sox do well. And the New Yorkers kind of wake up and like, oh, you know, all right, we, we have to pay attention to those Red Sox now. But then they go back to doing other things. Like they, we don't live in their heads the way the Yankees live in the heads of, of Red uh, Sox fans. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And I think there's a certain aspect of that in the China-U.S. relationship which is that, yes, the U.S. pays attention to China, and it is a major part of our understanding of the world. However, it is still the case that the U.S. is living in the heads of the Chinese leadership, So, and certainly in some of these uh, wolf warrior you know, ball sacks right. who are on Twitter. Right. Also, on a less wolf warrior, more macro people-to-people level, I think that's also true that you're right, when there's a big news story in the U.S. that's about China, often that is a story in itself yeah. in, in China, whereas the reverse isn't always the case. That's exactly right, and you and I have seen many cases of that in the last 20 or so years. Some some little news story in the U.S. that was just a blip would would explode here in China because it, it touched on sensitive issues. There was there was some criticism of uh, Xiao Shengyang, the, 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 the comedy talk show kind of comedy figure 
who was called like the filthiest man in China or something by in a Newsweek article, sort of claiming that he was sort of edgy because he was willing to you know speak foul language. And that was just a little story, kind of an innocent little uh, cultural story in, the, in Time magazine. And uh, or was it Newsweek? I can't remember. But anyway, that exploded in the in the social media here, and because people really took offense, they 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 were quite angry about it. Another example that I mentioned in a in an article that I published in the Asia Pacific Journal, which, which you can put uh, in the uh, show notes uh, for the podcast uh, about this issue about the the information asymmetry during COVID nineteen was an issue that we covered in a previous podcast when I was still in the United States, which is the kerfuffle about the sick man of Asia, the editorial with the Wall Street Journal. Now, that was a, a, that was a disaster that, that, could have been for, that could have been warded off, could have been foreseen. If, if the people, the editors, the people around the, the, uh, the, the newspaper, just the people in that, in that journalistic circle would have had a little bit a sharper cultural sensitivity on that term. Somebody could have said, oh, wait a minute. This may be a valid headline. It certainly catches a lot of eyes and it may sell a lot of uh, you know, copies of the newspaper. But we should give this a second thought because this is not just a, a term that we use. It's a sensitive term in, in China. But no, they had to use it. And the result was the firing and expulsion of some very, very good journal, journalists in a sort of a tit for tat. There were other issues, too, too such as Trump's kicking out of uh, lots of these Chinese journalists to go back to the previous podcast that we covered that. But um, I mean, I think that's an example of, of the kind of thing that if we had more people who had a, an intuitive sense of China and the mood here and the way people think about their country from having lived here, lived with Chinese, talked with them you know, gotten to know them a little bit better and how they feel about their country. I think that, that, that that's a problem that just wouldn't, we would not see happen with such alarming frequency. But that's the sort of thing we face on the long term if we don't get more boots on the ground here, really studying this culture, especially now when China is changing so fast. You know, a lot of the expertise that we do have um, is 10 years, 10, 15, 20 years old. They, 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 they sort of, their mindset is of a, of a Gaiga Kaifeng, China, that's going through all of these changes. And really, the, I would say just in the last 10 years, the, the change here under Xi Jinping has been astonishing. I mean, night and day, good for good and bad. I mean, even the city of Beijing the, that we love so much has, is, practically uh, changed beyond recognition in, in, in some parts of the city. And uh, f- again, for good and bad. And, and so these are all things that worry me a lot. And um, I'm not quite sure exactly how to go about rectifying this in the new post-COVID age. Getting, in, getting into the idea of getting students here, we saw, at least I saw this, 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 this wave crest, you know, with the Beijing Olympics, in 2008, there was that period uh, for the next couple of years after that, at least at our program, we were just full. I mean, inundated with students. And uh, at the same time, that was an era too that almost every university, every study abroad provider was like, we got to get into China. And there was a huge rush in because everyone wanted to get their students here, everyone wanted to be a part of it. There was a great deal of enthusiasm about China. But then some reality started to set in. I think the first one was the financial crisis and study abroad. It always affects study abroad because universities get more concerned about their finances. Parents get more worried about their finances. I think that was the first one. And then the second one was greater coverage 
of some of the issues in Beijing, in particular coverage of the air pollution, which absolutely needed to be covered because it was a major problem here. But it did not help, you know, if you're if you're if you're if you're a student trying to decide where to go, do I go to this place that is being told that you know people are like the air is so awful, it's like smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. It's it wasn't, but you know, or you know Barcelona, it's Barcelona, especially their parents who were you know calling the study abroad offices saying, you know, my kid wants to, we're not taking sending my kid to Beijing. You need air purifiers in every room and. I don't know if that was your experience too. No, it was. This this was one of the theories that, that this was one of the big set. And I think, uh, of course, it must have had an effect because when you see the lead story on CNN about China, it was always about, you know, Beijing, 8, 800 PM, 2.5 air pollution. It was a problem. It definitely was a problem, not only for parents, but also, you know, students that were the, frankly scared of the country because of this coverage. Um I think there were other reasons too. There were there were economic reasons. I think that the, you know, we we when we look at students and the amount of money that the amount of student debt that they incur in a four year degree, and they look at the sort of dwindling uh, employment possibilities, I think a lot of people begin to just make a very shrewd calculation and say, hmm, a whole semester in Beijing. Uh, for what exactly? My Chinese is not going to get good enough to get a, a job, you know, as a Chinese expert. I'm probably not going to get any sort of career information or, or training that I couldn't get here. Um, there was also in, an increasing understanding of what it meant to be a, a China person. You know, um, I remember uh, talking with Jeremy Goldcorn and other people about this this issue, this problem that. If you, if you come to Beijing, you study here a semester, and you decide to stay on, maybe you get a job or something, after a year or two, I'm actually, actually within the first year or so, you can sometimes get a, a pretty good job or an internship, paid internship anyway, that would be beyond anything you could possibly get in the United States as just a not yet graduated you know, uh, uh, university student. But the problem is the longer you stay here, you become really valuable to companies, including international companies here, because of your China skills, which is that you've got good enough Mandarin, you can get across town, you can deliver a package or, or uh, you know, do an executive summary on something that happens. But these are China skills. They make you employable here in China and valuable to companies. But you go, you, those skills, when you go back to the United States, don't mean very much. And so I think a lot of people begin to get hip to this, that this is maybe not the best career move. And so this was the time that uh, CET and other programs that I was watching began to sort of switch to short-term programs. And, and maybe you had the same experience. Yeah. I mean, professionally, that's kind of what I, that's how I shifted to. Because mm -hmm. after IES closed in Beijing, I, I kind of shifted to doing, you know, setting up my own company that worked with short-term programs. And I think you're right. Everything you said there was right on. I think there was one other thing that was happening too. In the last 10 or so years, I think universities and colleges have been much becoming much stricter about credit transfer and about the requirements for graduating in certain, especially in certain majors, and I'm thinking particularly of STEM. And the result is that for a lot of students, especially students in those majors, to take a semester and go abroad, they might not be able to get all of the credits they need to maintain academic progress. And you just mentioned you know, student loan, student debt, are, are you going to risk having to go to college for five years or four and a half years just so you can go abroad if that's going to mean more student debt? And I think a lot of students are like, no. 
And so, yes, that's exactly what we saw. I've seen, and I think you've seen it too. A lot of universities, a lot of students are shifting towards like three, four week faculty led programs that, you know, I'm of two minds on this. And again, I'm kind of biased here because I do work with a lot of these programs. But when I, when I first started working with short-term programs, I was thinking, is this the same thing? I mean, I don't know if it's three weeks or two weeks in, in China is going to be the same thing as spending an entire semester living with a family, and it isn't. But at the same time, there are more kids who are com- or more students who are coming to China who would not have otherwise come to China before. And it's not just the students who are in some of these majors like engineering or, or science, technology, but also seeing a lot of programs working with um, underrepresented students, first-time you know, students who are uh, first-generation college students. These are students who are vastly, and, 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 uh, and it's a real problem, underrepresented in study abroad. And some of these short-term programs are helping to close that gap a little bit. And so, you know, again, it's, it, there's good and bad in everything. It is, it is a problem that the longer-term students aren't coming in the same numbers. It's good that the shorter-term pro- students are coming in greater numbers, but will that be the case post-COVID? Yes, that's the question. That, this is the big question, right? Because things are going to be a lot different. China's different. Their attitude towards foreign exchange is students is is different. I mean, look, I mean, if you go back, really, just ten years ago, not that far back, really, um, the draw of China for that special group that you just mentioned—not not the sort of the average uh, study abroad student who wants to go get a suntan and meet and meet the opposite sex or the same sex. Uh, it's what was the what was the factor that draw that would draw people to China? There was a kind of a cool factor, like Ian Johnson calls it that, and it was one China was kind of exotic. If you didn't know much about it, you would think, gee, that's uh, you'd be curious about it. But there was there was the fact that uh, that Beijing was dis- despite the the sort of chaos and, and risk living here and the health risks and all this kind of thing, Beijing was a place where with a, a foreigner with a little. Um, with a little gumption and a, a little bit of Mandarin, could actually enter into some domains and actually interact and do some things that seemed consequential, more consequential than you could do in, a, in, a, in another sort of European country or something. Because, precisely because China was such a country in flux, there were uh, certain domains were, were com- almost completely unregulated which allowed for all kinds of participation at all levels. And the main one I'm thinking of is the, is the NGOs. Because for you and me, our programs and other programs, one of the big draw, draws was students could participate in internship programs. They could, uh, and still CET in Shanghai offers internships. And the excitement in Beijing was they could, there were literally, I think, the statistics I heard at that time or a little before, that there were something like a million NGOs in China that were, most of which were unregistered and just operating without any uh, government supervision, as you know, a non-governmental organization should, should operate without government supervision, probably. Opportunities like that gave students the chance to do uh, you know, incredible things, to volunteer with a NGO that does work with uh, trafficked women, you know, sort of rehabilitating them, job training, environmental NGOs, you could actually see the progress that was made in environmental control, uh, even some human rights NGOs and stuff like that. Students could go there, see, see what they were doing, meet the people involved, meet migrant workers, meet people who were some, some of these people that were, whose problems were being addressed, write papers on it, take photos with them, and they, they, they felt like 
this big, complex, changing country, I'm here and I'm sort of in the mix. I'm a part of it. This was a huge attraction, not not just for our students, but for people like me who felt like, you know, me as a, as a, as a and you also as a go-between, someone who lives in both cultures, who can speak Mandarin, who, and who, can, who has a, has a, a guanxi wang, a, a collection of friends and, and colleagues who we can call on. I mean, we had people like, uh, there was one person named Helen McCabe, who's not in China right now, but she was, um, she was also a CET person, and she had actually started the first uh, NGO or educational program for autistic children in China. It was the very first one. It was called the Five Project. So when students would come here, I could offer them an internship through her with this organization here. And we had people who did amazing things. There was one of our students, whose name I won't mention, but whose sister was also autistic. And by the end of the semester, she was giving, she was giving talks to concerned Chinese parents who didn't really understand why their kid had these problems, what autism, autism was. She was actually giving talks in Mandarin to parents, telling them what their options were and, and what it was like to live with autism. This kind of thing is, an, is for an undergraduate to come here. It's an astounding opportunity. And that's just one example. There were many, many, many stories like that. So for me and you, I, you know, post, pre-Olympics, post-Olympics, this was a very exciting time to be in Beijing. And these programs seemed not only sort of ex- exciting and opportunity-laden, but also you felt like we could make a difference or we could be a part of this place and its evolution, and maybe even offering sort of uh, in small ways to make it better or, to, or facilitate it. That aspect of the program, I am very pessimistic about. I, I think that time is over with. I think we will never see another day when you can have a study abroad program that has that kind of diverse sort of uh, those sorts of elements. I think it's impossible. Yeah, everything you just said there is really inspiring and is word for word everything that the Chinese government hated. <laughs> Probably, about those yeah. kind of programs. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think that's why, I mean, not only specifically focusing on those kind of interactions, which unregulated interactions in which there is international cooperation dealing with social issues in China is just not a feature in the machine anymore. But also a lot of that, you know, those interactions and a lot of those internships, which looking back now, we're definitely in a gray area in terms of their legality with organizations that were in a gray area in their legality. There are very, there are fewer gray areas. That's right. There's more, even the idea of like what we used to do or like what I used to do and what you kind of still do. These programs, I mean, you know, we had libraries, you had a library, we had a library of books and there are still there are still some libraries in Beijing, I hear. <laughs> but a lot of these books were books you couldn't get in China. That's and right. a lot of these books, I, I mean, you did the same thing. I did the same thing. I'd go home for Christmas, you know, and load up on books for the library, stick them in my suitcase, and right. just drag that back through customs. Or we could even order books and have them delivered. I mean, imagine that. Well, you know, this, the, the story I tell is uh, probably 10 years ago, I ordered a, a copy of, of Zhao Ziyang's book, Prisoner of the State. Uh, in both English and Chinese, was delivered to my office at at CET through Amazon, unopened. That's impossible now. Amazon doesn't even deliver books to China now. I mean, that's how far backward we've come. Uh, I mean, we are to be we are be 
to be forgiven for thinking that this was some new era and that we that, that China was going to open up to the extent that we could actually uh, you know have something like pure free academic freedom and I think I think that's kind of what you're speaking to I think the, that avenue has been pretty well closed off at least with cooperation with Chinese universities has anyone ever checked your syllabus I, I never I've never actually had that experience no. and a part of it too is that I think I stopped teaching full-time around 2016 and 2017 but even in the times I've been teaching I still try to teach a course a semester I haven't had that experience like the last time I had anything even like that was when I actually took over one of your old courses at CET right. for for a couple semesters and I remember that the, the the director of the program came to me one day and she said, oh, for this t- this class today, uh, one of the deans from the university wants to sit in. And I'm like, oh, really? He's like, yes. <laughs> this particular class? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, today's we're, g- we're going we're gonna to talk about June 4th. And she goes, ah, oh, I'm going to tell the dean that you're sick today. <laughs> and for most of my tenure th- uh, there with CET, it was not in the university's interest to even check because it was a don't ask, don't tell yeah, policy. Exactly, they they they, they welcome the presence of the program and they then they welcome the students there and they didn't really care what we taught. Nowadays, I don't think it's even up to them. I think that they're they're the powers that be that it's a it's there's something higher there. Uh, but this is also a significant issue because part of the draw, if you're going to be in academia, part of the draw is that you can go there and take courses that are can be taught. Freely with you know with with full academic freedom. Otherwise, you're you're paying for a, a substandard sort of you know educational product, and I can't say that we could guarantee that going forth, going forward. I think probably uh, monitoring uh, or at least uh, you know keeping the syllabus there available for the you know administrators to look at will be the new normal. I think going forward, I'm pretty sure. Now, we've been talking a lot about undergraduate programs, but of course, there are some pretty high-profile postgraduate programs, including uh, Yanjing Academy at Peking University, of course, the Schwarzman, Schwarzman, Schwarzman yeah. College at, at Tsinghua University. And, uh, and, and a little bit different one, but NYU Shanghai, Duke uh, du Kunshan, you know, there's some, you know, the, the sorts of collaborative, although those are co- uh, working with, in co- collaboration with a, a university, but yeah. And of course, the granddaddy of them all, uh, Nanjing Hopkins. Yes, right, right. right. And uh, the it is interesting. You think about those kind of programs and their mission, and uh, you wonder, you know, what you know, would a program like that be get approved today? I have to think probably not. And then there are you know political issues on both sides, by the way, of the Pacific that are making this even harder. You know, the Fulbright program gets canceled, and of course, yes. this is something that you know generations of uh, American scholars have gone through this program. It was a great conduit for information. So. That is a tragedy. That was a tragedy, a real tragedy, yeah. And then even at the Schwartzman College, uh, you know, the founder and namesake of the the college is a a pretty good friend of Donald Trump. And some of the students at the college noticed that. And they had a little mini revolt (laughs) earlier this year (laughs) over over the name Schwartzman. And so, I mean, you know, I I have to feel for some of the people (laughs) who work there who... Full disclosure: I happen to know some of them, but yeah, yeah the uh, I have to feel for some of them because they're kind of getting it from both sides. They've got a university <laughs> tightening down because of Chinese <laughs> politics, and they've got the kids rising up, the students rising up because of U.S. politics, and well, you, and you've got two very strong po- uh, forces clamping down on on this. One one is the is the is Tsinghua, and the other the other is Schwartzman, who's a friend of Donald Trump and doesn't want you to be saying these things. So there's a kind of a censorship at two different levels for two different reasons. So, Jeremiah, one of my uh, former colleagues at CET 
uh, Adam Jones is doing his PhD thesis, doing a survey of different study abroad programs, the ones we've, that we've been talking about, to see which ones uh, had, a, had a model that was sort of conducive not only to getting the students there, but also bringing benefit to the, to the universities, which is sort of what you were bringing up. You know, does this create, uh, you know, um, uh, well, profit, let's put it that way, but, you know, increasing student uh, participation and so forth. Um, and I think this is probably a good time. I think it's a timely sort of topic to sort of look back and see what kinds of programs tended to work best and as we look into the future, what kinds of models and what kinds of, uh, of strategies can we use going forth that might uh, you know, be successful in this, in this new post-COVID world of restrictions, you know, dead ends that, we're, that we've been talking about? Well, you know, I, I do think that we're going to revert back to an era when the people coming to China really wanted to be here. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that the, the downside of the the 2000s, especially the Olympic era, was there was also an influx of people like, yeah, sure, China. And, you know, those people aren't coming anymore. They, they're on to the next hotspot. That's right. And so at, post-COVID, the people who are going to come here are the people who have always come to China. You know, the, the China geeks, you know, these are our people, David. You know, these are... Right. And uh, on one hand, that's going to be a smaller number, which means a lot of the programs that kind of emerged in the last 10, 12 years, they're not going to make it. It's going to be fewer programs and they're going to be smaller. They're also probably going to have to uh, deal with the reality that the universities are going to limit the spaces in which they can operate on campus. And so I think that one of the other things that will happen is that a lot of them will move towards a small um, core of semester students, but a lot of them will be also facilitating uh, short-term programs, traveling programs, uh, alternating year programs directly with different universities mm-hmm. or with other other providers. And I, I think the reason they, that's a, a good model is because when the students come in for two or three weeks, it's educational travel. And that tends to get supervised less. There's still a little bit more space in there to work with students and to help contextualize China in a way that avoids uh, interference um, from you know the more ideologically minded bureaucrats mm-hmm. uh, than it does if you have students who are directly enrolled as part of the university. Yeah, I agree. That sort of that jives with my thinking on this. Well, my, I, what I think of is the CET program in Harbin. So this is um, you know a very high level program for people who already have some fairly high level of Mandarin proficiency. And it's very, it's very directed towards, uh, it's, dir- it's directed study. So the, the students, you get very dedicated students who are sort of in it for the long haul and they want to bring their Chinese to the next level, i.e. a professional level where they're actually able to speak in their chosen field. So that program has always been extremely popular for the people who are highly motivated and they, they take it very seriously. And it's, it has a, a steady stream. It always had a pretty steady stream of students. But as you say, it's a smaller group of students. It's those who are going to be in China one way or the other and see it as part of their career. So my advice going forward is, yes, I think that, that, that universities, programs like this that still exist and might want to modify themselves, go for the students that, that are really highly motivated and provide the best quality uh, training, not only just Mandarin training, but also cultural, social, and academic training, because 
that's that's at least a reliable pool of students that you're going to get because they'll come they'll they'll choose a program anyway no matter what so you're you're the you're, it behooves you to just offer the best program that that you can right the other thing is that just for the language itself it turns out that there's there is at least some evidence that students who are interested in taking a chinese uh, are are still willing to do so that the that the US China tensions and covid-19 haven't significantly reduced that except in terms of students actually coming to china but students but it turns out that you know although it's not optimal that language training and mandarin instruction can work pretty well on zoom and online you know it's it does it's not the death knell of that particular uh uh track in the way that that uh, the sort of programs that we were doing that had internships is really impossible remotely. But but language, yes, you, there are ways you can do it if you're creative and the students are dedicated and the teachers are, are also flexible and creative. It turns out you can do that. And I think there's some optimism that there will still be a, a, a fair number of students that, that do want to learn Mandarin because they understand the importance of China and they, they, see, they still see it as a part of their future. So that's another thing. I think that those programs can be salvaged with a little creativity and, and a, a little experimentation. But the other thing is for programs, for these other programs that we're talking about, and maybe some new f- formats that we can't even imagine right now, it's going to take, um, and I'm not being self-serving here, <laughs> but it's going to take more people like you and me who have been here for a long time that sort of know the lay of the land and still have contacts and people that can be brought in who are willing to collaborate. Because you can't really have a, a, a very an interesting program that will give students, you know, an inside look in China, unless you have participation of local Chinese who are willing to talk to the students, who are experts or who are conducive or English speaking, maybe. And and I th- I think those contacts and those connections that you and I both have um, are are just now more important than ever, because you can't really get off the ground without those those people. And I realized that sort of very intensely uh, last year when I was helping to organize a sort of ad hoc. Uh, on an ad hoc basis, a program for Chinese students who were stuck here and, and were, were supposed to be going to the U.S. to take to begin their undergraduate degrees uh, at American universities, but were stuck here in Beijing. And recruiting some faculty to, to teach them some English language courses just strained my guanxi wang to the limits. I mean, I was getting all these people. But, but I think it's important that, that you know, a study abroad program no matter how well established the university is that it's associated with, has to have local cooperation and local experts uh, to really make the program, uh, you know, uh, be worthwhile and be solid. So that's these are just some ideas that going forth, some some things that I think that that programs need to think about. And the the only thing, the other thing I can say is, it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna still take money to run these programs, and I think we need. Administrators who see clearly the importance of China and the and the potential of China to still be an important place for people to come, and in terms of the long term academically and, and in terms of the U.S. U.S. China relationship, I think it's essential. We can't let that we can't let these events bring all of that to to a halt, uh, because that's the equivalent of like a, a second Cold War or something. You you the societies get more isolated. And we really get to the stage where we, we really are not speaking the same language. Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you said there. And the, the other thing I would say to picking up on what you said about CET Harbin, we need to get out of two things. We need to get out of Beijing and Shanghai. Mm, good point. That, you know, 
10, 15 years ago, the infrastructure was the, these are the only cities with infrastructure for, that could handle foreign students. That's not the case anymore. And in fact, it'd probably be better to study in a place like Kunming or Chengdu. Uh, I'm, jury's still out on Harbin, but you know, Chengdu, <laughs> Kunming, Hangzhou, some yeah, of these yeah, other yeah. other sites, because the the pressure's a little bit less, the quality of life is a little bit better, and they're you know they are up and coming and and, and pretty well in many cases very very well developed cities. Uh, that's the that's the first thing. The second thing is there needs to be more Chinese administrators of these programs. Mm-hmm. I think the day and and this is this is probably not the best thing for my employment prospects, but the day of a, a person like me running a program uh, where I'm the guy in the office and there's like 15 people from China who are kind of running around doing yeah. the work, that's going to turn on its head. Yep. We need to have administrators and directors who are from China. I think we still still need some foreign staff of these programs, particularly in things like student services and in, and in to some extent also in terms of academics. But I think that, you know, we have our, as you say, our, our Guanxi Wong, but the people from Beijing or from whatever city these programs are located in, they're the ones who are going to really make these connections. And I think, I think it's still the case that a lot of these um, overseas providers and universities, they tend to feel more comfortable if the person they're talking with sure. is someone of, is another American. Right. I get that, but it's not going to be the best thing for your program on the ground. Yep. I totally agree. Yeah, good point. Well, this is a very much a subject which is near and dear to both of us, and, and we're open to ideas. We'd very much like to hear from other people on their own experiences, uh, suggestions for how to make these programs better, how to make help them survive. So, you know, to the to podcast land out there, if you have any, any interesting points, please feel free to get in touch with us. Uh, via the podcast or or, or via via our social media, send us an email. Yeah, Hit us up on Twitter. Us, yeah, we'd and, love to hear what you think. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, David, thank you so much. And uh, well, I'm actually off to uh, Dunhuang tomorrow. I'm I'm leading a program out into the desert. Wow. And so uh, we're gonna we're gonna cut it short here. And I uh, hope to talk to you and all of the people out there. And what did you call it? Podcast land. Podcast land. Excellent. I just made that up. Yeah. Okay. All right. And I'm going to count my books as you leave because you've been eyeing them greedily, I've noticed. I have been. Actually, when I, when I used your office at CET, yeah. I, I think I have some of your books. You need to turn it. And we're out. <laughs>